37th parallel on America's haunted highway, it's Pixelated Paranormal, your guide to the unusual and the strange. What's up, everybody, and welcome back to Pixelated Paranormal. This will be episode 264, and we hope you brought a towel or at least an umbrella because this episode is going to get a little messy. Mm. Not late night messy, but messy all the same. I, of course, am Sean, and with me as always is this fella, Preston. What's up, all you cool ghosts and goblins, you crocacoons and crocodingos and skeletors and skelettes and witchers and witches and Bigfoots and, I don't know, whatever the other form of Bigfoot S X S, Whatever you want to be, we're fucking happy to have you here. How about that? Daddy's a little bit under the weather. There you go. And I'm just along for the ride. Uh, back to my co-host, Sean. Mm-hmm. Huzzah. I was going to ask how you are, but I think you just answered it. You're a little under the weather on this episode. Yeah, and hopefully my washer signer is going to help me make me feel better. Probably not, but <laughs> why the fuck? You know, when in Rome, anything helps. Yeah. Hey, there you go. And I am working on a little um, barrel-aged spice cake ale. So oh. happy holidays, folks. We're still drinking the Christmas beers. Yeah. Wow. Well, this episode's story is going to be a lot of fun because you say you haven't heard it before either, so I'm stoked to share it with everybody. But first, we got a little bit of news to share with everybody. Now, this story was originally reported on January 8th. Experts are trying to find out what killed a 30-foot humpback whale found on an Atlantic City beach in New Jersey. This is the second dead whale to wash ashore at the beach in the city in two weeks. Another humpback whale was found dead near December 2022 on the 23rd. The latest dead whale was reported, though, just blocks away at 8 a.m. Saturday, January 7th. People watched as a bulldozer had to push the whale away from the surf. A necropsy report will be conducted to try to determine what it was that killed the whale. However, experts are puzzled because, like I just said, this is not the first one to die within two weeks of the previous whale. Now, back on December 23rd, a whale washed ashore on the same exact beach, and environmental workers were taking samples of the whale. They recommended burying this one in the sand just because of how big of a pain in the ass it would be to move a whole flippin' whale. But it gets a little stranger because apparently that wasn't the second. It was actually the third in a series of dead whales to wash up on the shores of New Jersey. Because back at the beginning of December on the 11th, 2022, in Upper Township, New Jersey, the Marine Mammal Stranding Center in Brigantine, Atlantic City County, was also called to an unusual find. A 30-foot dead humpback whale was washed ashore on Strathmere Beach. The whale is still lying on the beach and is expected to be removed by the town city workers. New Jersey wildlife reporters were dealing with a similar situation back in July, but technically this is the third whale to wash up on the shores in New Jersey in under a month. 
which is just fucking wacky, dude. What's killing the whales? And furthermore, why are they all rolling up in New Jersey, man? Um, I mean, whale aids. Could be. <laughs> Classic case of the old whale aids. I mean, that's the, the safest not. bet that's right true. there, buddy. When in doubt, whale <laughs> aids. Space aids, all the aids. Yeah. Well, as they lay there and rot in the sun, you can't imagine they're not getting all gooey and blobby and, you know, starting to expand, getting ready to explode at any minute. Which is funny and coincidental in a way, because our story tonight has to do with things that are blob-like as well. Let's just jump into it, shall we? Of course, we're talking about the Domston Blobs. A bizarre story that took place just over 64 years ago, on December 20th, 1958, in Sweden, somewhere between Hagenos and Heisenberg. And again, fair warning folks, we haven't gotten any better at this, I will be mispronouncing almost every name and city in the story. But anyway, December 20th, 1958, on this ill-fated winter's evening, a 30-year-old man by the name a 30-year-old man by the name of Stig Reedberg, along with his 25-year-old pal Hans Gustafsson, were driving home after spending the evening out on the town with their girlfriends in Hagenos. Their trip home back to the town of Heisenberg, where they were staying with Gustafsson's mother Anna Bergen, was one that they were all too familiar with. And on any other evening, it would have been a brief drive, without any incident. But presto, buddy, if there wasn't any incident that night, we wouldn't be here to talk about it, now would we? As they were driving in Hans's DKW combi vehicle, making their way home, suddenly a thick, soupy-like fog began to develop around the car on both sides of the highway. So thick that the two could barely see more than a few feet ahead of the car, so Hans made the decision to slow the speed of the vehicle down so they could make it the rest of the way home safe and sound. So there they were, traveling down Route 45 in the inky blackness of the night, surrounded by thick fog, and right around 3 a.m. as they were traveling near the Strait of Ozerond, which is a body of water that separates Denmark from Sweden, Nature came a-callin', and the guys decided to stop off on an isolated stretch of the road near the village of Domston. They decided to get out of the car, stretch their restless legs, and take a couple leaks, as you do. But then as the two men were wandering around the side of the road after shaking the dew off their lilies, they were taking in the view of how eerie the woods looked, soaked in the strange, lingering fog. When suddenly their attention was caught by a strange light that seemed to be glowing from about 50 yards off into the trees. And so they did what any other couple of 20 to 30 something year olds would do, and they adventured off into the woods just to see exactly what it was creating the bizarre glowing light. And after a short hike into the wooded area in front of them, surrounded by the trees, Hans and Stig soon came upon a glowing 15-foot-wide saucer-shaped UFO. The two men described the pie plate-shaped craft as being about three feet tall, and it was sitting on top of a three-legged tripod that was resting on the dirt. According to Gustafsson, We saw a strange, 
disc. Let me tell you what, it was resting on legs about two feet long. It seemed to be made of a peculiar shimmering light that changed color. <laughs> These were backwood Swedes. <laughs> Hell yeah. I like it. I like it. Don't ever change. But before the two could register exactly what it was they had just discovered, the bushes and other forest plant life began to rustle, and suddenly they were surrounded by several three-foot-tall, pinkish, undulating blob-like entities that were rushing towards the two unsuspecting men. They said that some of the creatures were waddling across the ground towards them, like they were almost walking on stubby little legs while some of the other blobs were hopping towards them, almost like gravity didn't affect them. The anamorphic little alien amoebas didn't seem to have any visible limbs to speak of, or sensory organs like eyes or ears or noses, nor any other discernible features. It was as if they were pulsating globs of gelatinous goop or flubber. They were like protozoa, just a bit darker than most. Sort of bluish color, hopping and jumping around like the saucer-like globe of animated jelly. As if things weren't terrifying enough already, though, it was about to get a lot worse. Because Stig and Hans couldn't prepare in time to defend themselves, and so they were both accosted by the unearthly blobs which immediately began to completely engulf their arms and legs inside their weird, viscous, jello-like bodies. Stig would later report that it almost felt like the creatures were made out of some kind of magnetic dough, and they used a suction-like attack to pull the men across the forest. Within just minutes of trying to fight off the blobs, to no avail, the men found themselves being pulled towards the saucer by a swarm of the creatures. While they both noticed that there were more of these jelly sack monsters standing off to the side in some kind of weird undulating, dancing, macabre jiggle. So imagine them just kind of like this, <laughs> just off to the side. Others were jumping in the air and twirling around. The drag the things exerted was terrifying and they gave off such a terrible smell they smelled like a Bigfoot screwing a skunk. Uh, like that or burnt sausage. I mean, I ain't no scientist here. I'm a fucking backwards redneck in Switzerland. And I can't use big words, so they, they stank. They stunk. <laughs> like ether. Yeah. They described the creatures as smelling like burnt sausage and ether. No matter how hard the two men fought these things, as soon as they'd free an arm or a leg from one creature, another would float over and take a hold of a different appendage and begin sucking them back inside their creepy little bodies. And the terrifying cycle would just keep going round and around, zapping them both of all their energy and strength. Now look, it almost seemed as if these little sons of bitches could read my mind. They parried every move before I made it, like master tacticians, little fuckers. Their strength was not so great because they were blobs, but uh, the technique which the the little bastards wielded was terrifying. Ad-libbing, folks. Finally, with a last-ditch effort of adrenaline, Stig managed to break free of the swarm of alien amoebas as he sprinted his ass off back to the car while being trailed 
by two more of the jello monsters that were just a few inches behind him. He looked over his shoulder as he was running away to check on his friend and stared in horror as he saw Hans was slowly losing his battle with a gaggle of goop monsters as he was desperately holding on to a signpost of a no camping sign. While both his legs were now completely submerged inside a gelatinous swarm of blobs. The group of blobs began levitating off the ground and were now collectively lifting Hans into the air, desperately trying to break his grip from the signpost to pull him inside their saucer. Stig finally reached the vehicle, ripping open the driver's side door, just as his gooey pursuers caught up and immediately began to engulf his legs, propelling him backwards towards the saucer-like craft. And in a fleeting last-ditch effort to try and hopefully get the attention of a passing car, Stig began slamming his fist into the horn and began angrily honking it as hard as he could, just as his grip on the steering wheel was quickly slipping. And for whatever reason, after a few seconds of his panicked honking, he noticed the sucking sensation on his legs had suddenly stopped. Stig turned around and steadied himself just in time to see these horrible little jelly sacks quickly hopping away from him back towards the ship. Stig turned back towards the car and again began pounding on the horn over and over, holding it down longer each time looking over his shoulder to check and see if it was having any effect on the swarm that was carrying his friend Hans, which was now only a few feet away from the saucer. And it was working, because now Hans was on his hands and knees, scrambling away from the slimy monsters as they were fluttering through the forest air back towards their ship. Hans finally managed to get back on his feet and booked it back to the car, that Stig had now successfully started, and the two men, now completely drained of all their adrenaline, watched in a mix of horror and awe as the flying saucer shot up off the for uh, forest floor with a strange piercing whistling noise and then shot off into the early morning sky, leaving behind only the smell of burnt chemicals and sausage along with two distraught and terrified men, with tears now streaming down their cheeks. All in all, the harrowing incident only lasted about five or so minutes, but it took the men over 20 minutes to gather their composure, enough anyway for Hans to take the wheel and drive the men the rest of the way home. The two terrified men eventually made it back home safely, and after discussing the implications of ridicule and scrutiny of their mental health, they both agreed to keep things quiet about what had just transpired. Look, after experiencing the blob monster, we were about as dumb as a box of rocks. We were paralyzed. We were crying our eyes out like little babies. And I said, baby Jesus, sweet baby Jesus, take the wheel because I can't drive. And after sitting in the car for about 15 minutes, we finally got our shit together, and it became very clear in our heads that we could drive on to Helensburg. And not until we were in the center of the city, we dared to speak to each other. And I looked over at Jerry, and the first thing said was, we should not speak to anyone about this because everyone's going to laugh at us. We're going to be the laughingstock at the town. Ain't nobody going to believe that uh, two little blob monsters uh, sucked at her feet and they smelled like, you know, burnt jelly and sausage and Sasquatch fucking a skunk. And so we, we just, we're going to keep quiet is what we're going to do, all right? 
neither one's name was Jerry. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, but of course, as many of the victims and experiencers of these kinds of stories do, after three long days of trying to hide the physical evidence of the massive bruises and bloodshot eyes, and after marinating in their anxiety and insomnia and PTSD from the events that had occurred, the men eventually came forward with their otherworldly experience and decided to share what the hell just happened to them with Hans's mother, Anna, and his brother, Bent. To which they received, you guessed it, a massive amount of laughter and ridicule from Hans's family. His mom went on to say, I burst out laughing at Stig as he told it. Yes, we all did. Everything sounded so weird. There ain't no way no booger monster came out of no spaceship out in the forest. But thankfully, after a little dinner table banter, after examining their bruises and seeing the terror on their faces as they recanted their story, Anna and Bent took the two men's story more serious, and Hans's mom actually took it upon herself to report the tale of their experience to Sweden's largest newspaper, Helsingborg's Dogblad. And then on January 9, 1959, the pair of men were then called into Helsingborg's police station for questioning, and they were interrogated for over 11 hours by three local police officers, Captain Lenert Bunk and two detectives named Aki Frembrandt and Sven Rudolph. The whole ordeal was then oversaw by a German military psychologist named Michael Vacher. And even though the interrogation was actually a simple ruse to cover up a military investigation as to whether or not these actual extraterrestrials came to Earth, or, on the other hand, the two men who worked at the dry cleaners may have actually been accosted by a military aircraft, the group who completed the interview ultimately deemed the two men's terrifying tale was more than likely true, saying that after talking to them, they had no reason to believe the story was a hoax. The police even went as far as to hide a couple microphones in the room when the two men were by themselves, just to see if they could catch wind of them conspiring or collaborating. But they reported that even when the two men were by themselves, they stuck to their respecting story, and there was still no evidence they had faked the experience. Actually, we did not leave out anything without asking, pertaining to their encounter of the little booger monsters. But we couldn't find anything that is considered a hoax. A short time after the police interview, local news outlets caught wind of the story and quickly blew it into the wide open, forcing the two men to become public names in the realm of alien encounters, even against their wishes. Hans and Stig would go on to agree to a barrage of psychiatric tests and medical examinations, which would only go on to further support that both men were physically and psychologically sound, who may have in fact truly had a terrifying alien encounter. But despite all this proof, as they actually usually do, the Swedish military publicly denounced the encounter as nothing more than a simple hoax. So what do you think, Preston? Did two men really encounter a saucer full of jelly monsters? Yeah, man. I am wholeheartedly on the booger monster train. I think, uh, you know, uh, they encountered some boogers. 
That's what I'm thinking too. Or at least some uh, space jellyfish. <laughs> right. Well, you know, the story sounds a lot like the 1958 film The Blob, starring Steve McQueen and Anita Corsot, which originally was released in the U.S. in September of 1958, just a few months before their terrifying encounter. Have you seen the old blob? Nope. Oh, boy, you're missing out. Basically, the plot of the film is pretty similar. The film concerns a carnivorous alien blob that crashes down to Earth from a meteorite landing near two small towns. It starts to envelop living beings, growing larger and larger and redder in color as it starts devouring all these human victims, and it grows to the size of like a gas station, I think. Oh. But it's not really easy to determine when the blob actually was um, premiered in Sweden. I don't know if it got launched in Europe the same time it did in the U.S., so these guys may have just been recounting the entire ordeal off of secondhand stories from the blob movie, or they may have really been accosted by little amoeba alien jelly sack monsters. It's hard to say. Yeah. But on the other side of the coin, presto, there is a weird phenomenon that occurs in nature called star jelly. Have you heard of this stuff? No. Okay, fair enough. I'm glad you came. But I have heard of, uh, there are reports of, um, in the upper atmosphere, like scientists, when they've sent up like weather balloons and stuff, that they're Mm -hmm. in the upper atmosphere of Earth and, you know, the running idea is even Jupiter and possibly some of its moons, that there are a jelly-like amoeba that grows in the upper atmosphere and sometimes, like, you know, it blows up. You know, it gets full and rains down snot. And, uh, you know, that that could have been it, you know. I don't know. I'm no scientist. (laughs) That you are not, buddy, but that's what I appreciate about you. So, star jelly, also called astro jelly, is this weird gelatinous substance that sometimes can be found on, like, grass and branches of trees. Now, according to folklore... Ooh, maybe that's where astral, astral lube gets... Like, they don't even make it in the laboratory. Like, some rednecks <laughs> just out there fucking scraping it off trees and putting it in a tube. And like, here you go. Here's your, here, here's your sex for you, everybody. <laughs> astro jelly. Yeah, just scooping up. Just scooping up, you know, rotting frog corpses. Yeah. According to folklore, astro jelly and star jelly is deposited on Earth during meteor showers, presto. It's described as being a translucent or grayish-white gelatin that tends to evaporate shortly after falling towards the Earth. Now, further explanations have ranged from it being the remains of frogs and toads or worms or even white-colored gelatinous fungus called Myzerium nucleatrum, a clear gelatinous fungus that is found growing on decaying wood. But no matter what it is, the actual you know, star jelly has been reported as far back as the 14th century, and it continues to show up in news articles even like today. Back on November 11th of 1846, a luminous object estimated to be about four feet in diameter fell down to Lowville, New York, leaving behind a heap of foul-smelling luminous jelly that disappeared shortly after developing. 
1950, four Philadelphia, Pennsylvania policemen had reported they found a dome-shaped disc of quivering jelly right around the size of six feet in diameter and about a foot tall at the center in the middle of the forest. Now, when they tried to pick it up or poke it with sticks, it dissolved into an odorless, sticky scum. This is supposed to be the story that inspired the blob. Hmm, space On juice. August 11th, 19... 19- <laughs> yeah, it might have been. Ew. On August 11th, 1979, Sybil Christian of Frisco, Texas, reported the discovery of several purple blobs of goo in her front yard following the Perseid meteor shower. A follow-up investigation by reporters and an assistant director of the Fort Worth Museum of Science and History discovered a battery reprocessing plant outside of town where caustic soda was being used to clean impurities from lead in the batteries would sometimes spill over, resulting in a purplish compound as a byproduct. Now, this report was greeted by a lot of skepticism because, you know, a lot of people want it to be aliens. In December of 1983, grayish-white oily gelatin fell on North Reading, Massachusetts, on lawns, street lights, and sidewalks, even dripping from gas station pumps, unexplainably. In 1997, a similar substance fell on Everett, Washington, and star jelly was even found in the Scottish Hills during the autumn of 2009. Blue balls of jelly also rained down on a man's garden in Dorset back in January 2012, And upon further analysis on this one, though, it appeared to be sodium polycitrate granules, a kind of superabsorbent polymer with varied common uses, especially agriculturally. But there's also a very specific episode of Unsolved Mysteries Presto that I remembered watching as a kid that kind of reminded me of these stories of this weird star jelly. And you may remember this one or you may not. But the story goes that back on August 7th, 1994, in Oakville, Washington, at right around 3 a.m. again, same time as the Domston Blobs, a weird rain began to fall, blanketing an area of about 20 miles in a square area. Though it was common there for rain, residents began to note that it wasn't water that was falling from the sky, but a strange gelatinous substance that they had never seen before. Over the period of about three weeks, it fell a total of six different times. At first, when it began, Officer David Lacey was on patrol with a civilian friend when he turned his windshield wipers on as the rain was accumulating, only to smear it against the windshield instead of washing it off. The windshield forced him to pull over to a gas station and try to clean it manually. After donning a pair of latex gloves for safety, he took a sample and described it as, as being very mushy, almost like you had a jello dessert in your hand. A local resident named Dorothy Hearn stepped outside after it had stopped and noticed it was everywhere. At first, she thought it was hailstones, but instead, when she touched it, she noticed it was like an odd, gelatinous texture. By the afternoon that day, David and Dottie and other various residents that had become close to the mysterious goo had become mysteriously and violently ill. They all described as having difficulty breathing, extreme vertigo, blurred vision, and an increased sense of nausea. And erections that lasted for four hours. Dude, they, <laughs> you're fucking like rock hard and ready to go. We are like, it's party time, baby. Um, she said that everybody in town started to get these weird flu-like symptoms. And additionally, several cats and dogs that came in contact with the substance had all sadly passed away. 
An hour after Dottie noticed symptoms, she was found sprawled in her bathroom floor, conscious but very weak. Her daughter, Sunny Barcliffe, described her as feeling cold and sweat-drenched, looking very pale. She was then taken down to a hospital where she stayed for three days, being diagnosed with nothing more than a simple inner ear infection. But samples of the goo were quickly sent to the Washington State Department of Health for further study, where a microbiologist named Mike McDowell said that the substance was teeming with two species of bacteria, one of which lives in the human digestive system. Now, because of Mike's findings, it was initially speculated to be human waste from nothing more than a simple airplane. But the Federal Aviation Administration regulations require that this kind of dump be dyed blue. That way, it'd be perfectly clear exactly what it was, but this substance was more clear and didn't have a shade of blue in it. Furthermore, regulations forbid pilots from releasing what they call blue ice in mid-flight. Nearly a year after Dottie fell ill, she mailed a sample that she had stored in her freezer to Amtest Laboratories, a private research lab. And while they analyzed it, Tim Davis, another microbiologist, believed he saw eukaryotic cells, complex nucleus-containing cells, that were present in most living creatures. This meant at one time or another, the substance had to have been alive. One theory, as the origins, that it might have been a military naval bombing run at sea that had accidentally destroyed a school of jellyfish and sent their pieces flying into the atmosphere. <laughs> what the fuck? Mm. But the Air Force confirms they were not doing any practice bombings over the Pacific Ocean on that day and deny any knowledge of the substance or the involvement in creating or dispersing it. Typical. Yeah. Sorry, guys. What knows when we're doing anything in that area that day? Honest engine, we weren't. We were, we were, we were busy doing other <laughs> stuff, but not that. Right. But if we were, we'd well, have I was kind of hoping we'd have to plead the Fifth Amendment and tell you that we weren't. It's top secret. <laughs> yeah. So maybe we were, maybe we weren't. Who knows? We're not going to tell. Uh, how's chat looking, buddy? Oh, I mean, uh, so far, uh, cousin Ken said uh, maybe I'll get myself a Christmas ale. And I know how much he loves uh, whiskeys uh, in his uh, Trump glass that he got from the casino. So I said, or, you know, have yourself a whiskey and a Trump glass. And he said, that is true. And I can only assume that Dravy is giving me the the, the rock rock and roll sign uh, for my accent for the backwards redneck Swedes out in the forest because he said <laughs> spot on. And I know that has nothing to do with your pronunciation of stuff. More about me nailing that accent. <laughs> so, there according to Dravy, I am, in go. fact, uh, convincing as a backward Swede out in the forest. I was really surprised monster. you didn't go with, like, <laughs> I was really surprised you didn't go with the Hans and Franz. Yeah, little blob yeah, monsters. I, yeah, I was out in the forest, yeah, and the little blob monster came up and sucked, he sucked my feet, yeah, and smelled like a Bigfoot fucking <laughs> a skunk, yeah, you know, you know, See, like dirty socks that's what and I cheese, was expecting. yeah. <laughs> well, I've got one more story to share with everybody that I found to be very peculiar, and I've been sitting on this one for a while, hoping to share it one day when Rob was with us, but that's all right. He'll be back when he shows back up. 
And also, uh, in case listeners don't know, Rob, in fact, has a blob fetish that he shared on, like, episode 24, <laughs> 25. Like, if it's green and jello-like and blobish, Rob is probably going to, you know, burker. Just saying. He's not here to defend himself. There you go. So. Well, in lieu of any kind of, uh, you know, grade school jokes, you ever hear of the old Kentucky meat shower of 1878? <laughs> no. Tell me about the sausage <laughs> <Good>. fest. <laughs> if I could read properly, I'd also like to ask you, you ever heard of the old Kentucky meat shower of 1876, which is the proper year that I just misread? Yeah, nah. I haven't heard about that one either. All right, I want you to journey back with me to Bath County, Kentucky, 1876, a clear March morning. A morning where meat began to fall from the sky. Miss Crouch told local reporters that between 11 and 12 o'clock in the morning, she was in her yard not more than 40 steps from the house, and there was a light wind coming from the west, but the sky was clear and the sun was shining brightly. Without any prelude or warning of any kind, though. And exactly under these circumstances, clear skies, bright, shining sun, a bizarre shower had commenced. Not just any shower, though, but a shower of fresh, raw lumps of meat. Some as light as a snowflake, but others that rained down were three inches in length. It lasted for several minutes. Mrs. Crouch and her husband Alan watched as the unusual downpour fell around them before finally stopping, leaving the sky just as clear and sunny as it has been before the bizarre shower. So immediately the Crouches believed that the meat shower had either been a miracle or a grisly warning. Before long, word of the meat shower had spread, bringing flocks of curious neighbors to the scene. And in the end, an area of about 100 yards long and 50 yards wide had been covered in chunks of meat. They found samples on fences, on the farmhouse, scattered across the ground. And the overall consensus seemed to be that the meat was beef with a similar color and had a similar smell. However, a local hunter disagreed, claimed the meat had an uncommonly greasy feel, most resembling that of a bear. To end the debate once and for all, a few brave men skilled at hunting took it upon themselves to taste a few pieces of the meat. Their official decision was that by the taste alone, the meat had to either be venison or mutton. But unsatisfied with the three conflicting opinions, a local butcher took a bite, and according to him, the meat was none of the above. He said it tasted neither like flesh, fish, or fowl. Finally, the town authorities decided it was time to get an official ruling on what exactly had fallen from the sky. So, they collected samples, wrapped them up, and sent them to chemists at local universities around the country. One chemist from Louisville College deducted that the sample was indeed, as one of the hunters had suggested, nothing more than mutton. Another disagreed, though, stating that while it was certainly meat, it definitely wasn't mutton. Eventually, scientists gave up on what and started focusing more on the more bizarre question, where, as in where the hell did this meat shower come from? If it was in fact meat, how the hell did it get in the sky, and more importantly, 
How did it get up there in the first place? Well, one scientist decided the meat was most likely the result of a meteor shower or a meteor shower, M-E-A-T, if you catch what I'm throwing here, fuck. According to the present theory of astronomers, an enormous belt of meteoric stones consistently revolves around the sun, and when the Earth comes in contact with the belt, she's soundly pelted, wrote William Livingston Alden to the New York Times. Similarly, we may suppose that there were revolving around the sun a belt of venison, mutton, and other meats divided into small fragments, which then precipitated upon the earth whenever the latter crosses the path. <laughs> Dude, get the fuck out of here with that science. This is a bunch of fucking backward redneck, you fucking dipshits. Well, here's the thing, folks. Uh, we don't really know what's going on, but I think, I think, I think that really... The best way to explain this is, uh, you know, we are discovering through uh, our, you know, giant brass telescopes that can't see shit, really, uh, with uh, some, some rocks outside of Mars and Jupiter, and there's an asteroid belt there, and it's orbiting the sun, and inside that asteroid belt are little chunks of flesh that somehow don't get burned up when re-entering the atmosphere, and uh, Mrs. Smith just ended up getting a meat shower that day instead of a golden shower. <laughs> Which normally you have to pay extra for. Yeah, like that's the best that you got. Get get the fuck out of here. <laughs> well, in addition, he offered a more macabre theory suggesting the meat was actually the flesh of finely hashed citizens of Kentucky who were all caught up in a whirlwind while engaging in a little difficulty with their bowie knives and strewing their parts all over the astonished state. Fucking creative writers even back in the late, late 1800s. So here's the thing, Mrs. Smith <sighs> went batshit crazy and she decided to go ahead and get her bowie knife out and Mr. Jones got his bowie knife out. Hell, half the goddamn town got their bowie knives out and they went ahead and they went hacking and slashing and slashing and hacking. And just meet over the goddamn place, and then a tornado came up and spun it out in the air, and then rained it down hundreds of miles later. True story, really happened. <laughs> One scientist, Leopold Brandes, wrote in an article in the Sanitarian, where he claimed the event was simply a shower of Nostoc, a genus of cyanobacteria which takes on a jelly-like appearance when it comes into contact with a simple rainfall. His theory was the bacteria was on the ground, a simple rainstorm had occurred, thus causing the goo to develop on the ground after the rain fell. But it doesn't explain why Mrs. Crouch and her husband saw chunks of meat falling and bouncing in their yard. Both of the more scientific theories for the Kentucky meat shower were also later shunned after more likely but equally unfathomable, a new theory had come to light. Time travel and Nazis. Both the Crouches... <laughs> Both the Crouches, a chemist named Robert Peter, and a chemist from Louisville College all put forth a theory that the Kentucky meat shower was the result of a flock of vultures vomiting simultaneously after feasting themselves more abundantly than usual. I am informed it is not uncommon for buzzards thus to disgorge their overcharged stomachs and when in a flock, one commences the relief operation, others are excited to nauseate as well, and generally thus causing a shower of half-digested meat to take place. The townspeople decided that this was most likely the scenario, and elected to believe it was the best explanation for the Kentucky meat shower. Obviously, 
it slipped their minds that members of the town had actually eaten pieces of the half-digested meat, <laughs> which is fucking gross. <laughs> mm. All in all, it never came to light what exactly caused the Kentucky Meat Shower of 1876, but I thought it'd make a nice little capstone at the end of our blob episode, buddy boy. Yeah, I think I'm going to change my whole thought. I, I am so sorry I made fun of those Kentucky scientists that said that there was a, you know, venison meteorite bullshit. It's, I mean, I got I to gotta roll with it now, you know. It's either real science of buzzards, you know, vomiting or bullshit comets in outer space. And, uh, you know, the, mox fo- the fox molder inside of me wants to believe in uh, fucking, you know, meat comets, not... You know, science, science. So I'm changing my tune, changing my mind. Look at that. Disregard everything I said in the last 10 minutes. The much coveted, rarely given apology from Preston. Yeah. (laughs) I usually don't go back on what I say, but I got to... I got to go back because that's that's a wild ride having meat comments like... I mean, mm-hmm. I was expecting like somebody was going to say like, uh, you know, the blimp society, like all those blimps that everybody was seeing, the steampunk blimps <laughs> that they got uh-huh. into like a, a fucking all out fight and they were dropping bombs and like all the explosions was shooting up like bears and deers and other shit in the air. And then it was just raining down like that. That would have been the cherry on the fucking cake right there. And I would have been like, problem, you know, the mystery solved. We're done. We're out of here. Um, but then you hit me with the hardcore, actual, probable thing that happened of buzzards belching up meat because they were just fucking too hungry. Like, come on, Jerry, let's eat this deer. And then a couple of hours later, I, I just can't do it, dude. <laughs> I, I got to go with batshit crazy. Meteor meat. Yep. Buzzards belching up beefy bits, I think is what we have going on here, folks. Well, thanks for joining me tonight, man. Even though you weren't feeling too good, I know that you really, you know, powered your way through this. But before we finish up, you got anything else to add, buddy boy? Well, as always, if you need a beard, if you want a beard, um, if you want to grow a beard that's going to make a a buzzard, you know, vomit midair, or maybe you're out in the (laughs) Swedish forest and uh, there's a blob monster that's getting a, a, uh, you know, fucking... snot hard on for you and you're like ooh la la let me have some of that snot shower (laughs) then do yourself a favor Uh and go over to bigdobsbeardbomb.com and use promo code PXLPARA for 20% off your order let me me say that one more time folks PXLPARA that's the promo code that gets you 20% off your order you can pick yourself up scents like bay rum fresh citrus mint classic Sweet tobacco, get it all, get it at Dobbs. I mean, you'll smell better than you know Bigfoot fucking a skunk. That's for sure. Like you know rancid mm-hmm. meat, which you know you need everything you you can get for your A game. So get it all, get it at Dobbs. Thank us later. And then if I <laughs> jump over to the old Uber tube here, let's uh-huh. just see where we're at. 228 subscribers we've gone up to since the last time we've recorded um, 151 videos and uh, you know let's see let's look at the history of some of the live our Q&A got 54 views 
uh, our 2022 end of the year bullshit thing got 42 views. Our Christmas special, hello, hello, 67 mm-hmm. views. And uh, Tales of the Comanche Haunted USA, 36 views. So okay, there you go. A modest thirty-six views. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, like I like it. We still got like three thousand views on that fucking, you know, Spanish conquistador with an afro that haunted a computer. I don't know how it keeps getting it, but it does. And uh, so we appreciate all the <laughs> likes, subscribes, and shares. Uh, keep helping us grow, all you cool ghosts and goblins. We appreciate it. Well, I think um, what we say our new night of recording is going to be Sunday nights. Does that work the best for you? Yeah, I would say Sunday nights. And Monday nights. Sundays or Mondays? Sundays. I think Sundays. Sundays. Okay. So if all goes to plan, what says you to us getting on a regular recording program of streaming at like 9.30 Sunday nights? How's that work? Boom. Let's do it. Sweet action. Okay, you heard it here, first, first, folks. First, folks, um, we're going to start recording on Sunday nights, doing live streams at 9.30. This should be for most episodes, unless something catastrophic happens that makes us push it back. So I think it's safe to say we'll probably be doing regular streams every Sunday, 9.30. And the podcast will then be released on Wednesdays. We're going to get back to releasing on Wednesdays. So, um with that being said, please follow us on the Instagram, PXL Paranormal. Follow us on Facebook, The Pixelated Paranormal Podcast. If you would like, we'd love to hear your own personal paranormal stories. You can email them to us at pixelatedparanormal at gmail.com. You can also give us a call and leave us a voicemail. Our Google Voice is 913-662-3144. So please send us your personal stories. And you can also PM those to the Instagram, um, to the Facebook. You can shoot us personal messages if you know us one-on-one. Uh, we'd love to hear from you guys. You can stay anonymous. Just let us know, hey, please don't say my name. And we will not say your name. All right, Presto, you already plugged the old Big Dos beard bombs. And let me just say, if you're in the Wichita area, please stop by, see our dear friend Leslie and the rest of the gang at CD Trade Post Pawnee and Seneca. All right. Until next time, folks, cheers to the weird shit in the world and those of us that love to talk about it. And stay spooky and stay on the paranormal highway. The cast that Pixelated Paranormal would like to thank you for listening to this week's episode. Pixelated Paranormal is here to tell you tales of the fantastical, the strange, the unknown. Tales that will move you a little further down the paranormal highway. If you'd like to share your own listener story, we would love to hear it. Email us at pixelatedparanormal at gmail.com. Again, that's pixelatedparanormal at gmail.com. We'd really love to hear from you. Again, thanks for listening to this week's episode of Pixelated Paranormal, your guide to the unusual and the strange.